as we said, here in John chapter 9, Jesus is going to heal a man born blind. And Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll look at that healing in itself, that miracle in the context of John chapter 9 and what goes on before, during, and after that. But this morning, let's do a little blue blaze. Let's do a little side trail, if you will. And uh, we're going to go down a rabbit hole. I want us to focus on that question, the disciples' question. Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And then let's consider the Lord's answer. That question, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that question taps into an ancient question, an ancient problem, which is still a contemporary issue today, and that is the problem of pain. The question of how, why is there so much pain and suffering and evil in the world? If God is loving and God is good and God is all-powerful, then why is there so much evil and pain and suffering in the world today? It's, a, it's an age-old question, and it's still a contemporary issue. So this morning, we're just going to, we're not going to solve all that, but we're going to touch on it as we explore the pain problem this morning. If you have your bulletin, there's that listening guide on the back panel. Let's start, first of all, with the blame game, <laughs> the blame game. Uh, Lord, who sinned? Whose fault is this? This man is blind. He's, he's no doubt a beggar. That's what blind people could do. That's all they could do in the first century. So he's no doubt a beggar. But here's a man who's been born blind, been blind his whole life. Lord, whose fault is it? Who can we blame? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? Now, behind that question are at least two assumptions, two unstated assumptions, but they, they inform and, and promote the question. The first assumption is this, that life should be pain-free and problem-free. That's, that's the unstated assumption, that people shouldn't be born blind. People shouldn't be blind. People shouldn't have pain. There shouldn't be suffering. That a loving God, the assumption is a loving God would want me to be happy and healthy and wealthy and comfortable, right? That's what I want for myself. So surely that's what a loving God would want for me Two. This is why we love Jeremiah 29, 11. That's why people have it written in their Bibles. That's why you have Bible covers. We have little cross-stitch signs. I mean, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Don't you love that verse? Especially the word prosper. God wants to prosper me. That's what I want too. Praise the Lord. Well, don't get me started on Jeremiah 29, 11, but here's a short version. That's, that's not meant for you. <laughs> that verse was made to a specific group of people, exiles in Babylon, prisoners of war. I, I, I don't want to harm you. You look at who God said that to, he had already brought a world of harm on these people. They were devastated. They were prisoners of war. Their nation was invaded, the capital destroyed, the temple destroyed, the king slaughtered, their loved ones slaughtered. I mean, this, and now they, the, the survivors, they are in exile. They're prisoners of war. And then God gives them that promise, Jeremiah 29, 11. But it really wasn't even for them. It wasn't about them. It was about the nation. It was about God's people. And it would be fulfilled in the generations to come. There's a whole context. Point is... I want to be fat, dumb, and happy, so certainly a loving God would want me to be fat, dumb, and happy too, right? That's the assumption. The second assumption behind this question, Lord who sinned, him or his parents, that he should be born blind. The second assumption is when bad things happen, when there is pain and suffering, well, it's somebody's fault. Someone is to blame. Somebody sinned, and they're being punished for their sins. That's the assumption. Here's a blind man, been blind his whole life, born blind, somebody sinned. That's bad theology. 
But it's not new theology. It's still around today. You hear it on a lot of TV preachers, the health and wealth guys, the joy boys on television. Uh, But it's an old bad theology. This is the story of Job. You go back and read the book of Job. It's all about this. In the book of Job, God tells us at the beginning of the book, there's a man named Job. He was blameless, upright, fearing God, shunning evil. And no one like him. I mean, this guy was top drawer. He's, he's the cream of the crop. And yet in one terrible day, his life disintegrated around him. I mean, it just went down. It went to ashes all around him in one day. His friends show up and they have the same theology as the disciples in John 9. And their theology says when bad things happen to good people, it's because good people have done bad things. And so, Job, you sinned. You're being punished for sin. And when Job didn't admit that he had sinned, he didn't fess up. They started concocting, well, here's all your sins. Here's why this is happening. They start making up sins for him to have committed. This was their theology. Bad things happen to bad people. And if bad things happen to good people, it's because good people have done bad things. And so here you go. God's punishing them for sins. The whole book of Job is a refutation of this theology. At the end of the book, God gets mad at Job's friends because their, their theology, they're being They've said the wrong things about God, and God has Job pray for them for their sake. Now, we come to John 9, same theology. This man is blind. He is a beggar, no doubt a beggar. Somebody sins. Somebody's to blame. That theology, it it, kind of goes back to Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, God's people are about to go into the promised land. After 40 years of wilderness wanderings, they're about to go into the land of promise. God's going to make good on a 400-year-old promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God sends word to his people through Moses. You're about to go into the land of promise, and here's the contract. Here's the deal. As you go into this land of promise, if you honor me, you stay faithful to me, you keep my word, you keep my commandments... I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your socks off. I'm going to bless the ever-loving stew out of you. It's going to be great. And those blessings are going to take the form, generally speaking, of material blessings. You'll have a house full of kids. You'll have livestock, fertile livestock. You're going to have great crops. There's going to be food on the table. There's going to be clothes on your back. I will bless you in the land that I'm giving you. However, you need to know this. You go into this promised land and you forsake me and you start going after other gods and you disobey my word, and you forsake my commandments, all bets are off. And all those blessings, they're going away. And instead, I will bring the pain. That's the contract. That's the deal. Now, those are two general principles. God, generally speaking, God rewards, blesses obedience. God punishes disobedience. That's a general principle. Holds, through, holds true all through God's word, right? Generally speaking, God blesses obedience, God punishes disobedience. The problem comes when we take those two general principles, set them in concrete, and then then think we can work on them backwards and do reverse logic. So here's what that looks like. Again, the theology of the disciples and Job's friends. You see somebody living large. I mean, their life is amazing. They, they live a charmed life. <laughs> They're fat, dumb, and happy. They got money. They got health. They got blessings. I mean, they just, they've got it made. So the assumption, the conclusion is God's blessing them. Why does God bless people? Because they're righteous. So if they're really wealthy, really happy, they've got everything anyone could ever want, they must be really righteous. Now, is that always true? Of course not. You can look around today. There are some very 
well-off people who are absolutely wicked. On the other hand, if you take that theology and try to work it backwards, here's someone who, man, they're, they're suffering. And it's just one struggle after another, one problem after another. I mean, they just can't, they can't get two steps forward without taking three steps back. It's just one, one blow after blow after blow after blow. That theology says somebody sinned, him or his parents. Somebody sinned, God punishes sin. So they're in this mess. They're hurting because they're wicked, they're sinful. Is that always true? It's not always true. Some of God's choicest saints go through some of the worst stuff. So you can't, this, this theology, it's a warped theology. It's a wrong theology. But that's behind this question. Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents? And you still find that theology today, like I said, even on some of the TV preachers. But notice the Lord's response in verse 3. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. He's not blind because someone sinned. Now, he's not saying this man is sinless, his parents were sinless. But he's not blind as a punishment for sin. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the answer is, this isn't because of sin. He's not blind because someone sinned. But God's going to be glorified in what Jesus is about to do. Now that answer, verse 3, that's a rabbit hole. Things get complicated. If you start drilling down on that, it gets complicated. Let me give you four different ways scholars kind of wrestle with that answer. It's easy on the face of it, but then you start you stew on it a little bit and you go, hmm. <laughs> so here are four different ways. This isn't on your outline. This is free. One way to, to, to handle that answer, the Lord's answer, is just on face value. Just take it as it is. And that so that clause is a purpose clause. And, it, and the implication is this man was born blind. God allowed it, ordained it, caused it. To whatever extent, you know, you got to wrestle with that too. That's another rabbit hole. But God allowed it or caused it that this man was born blind. He's been blind up to now for this purpose, for this day, and for this miracle. It has brought him to this point. That's the, that's the point. That's the plain sense of it. Andreas Kostenberger, I like him. He takes this approach. He, point, he said it this way. God had sovereignly ordained his blindness. So he doesn't say he caused it, but he's at least ordained it somehow. Whatever that means, God has sovereignly ordained his blindness so that God's glory might be revealed in Jesus. Well, that doesn't sit well with some folks. We, I, don't, you know, I just can't imagine that God would want somebody to be born blind and be blind all this time for John chapter 9. So, so that doesn't sit well. So some scholars will say, hmm, let's, let's, let's tweak that a little bit. And they would say, well, God didn't necessarily cause the blindness but he is going to overrule it. He, he's, he's going to overcome it and use it to manifest his glory. And that's, I mean, that's fine too. F.F. F. Bruce, he, he, he took that approach. He wrote this, this does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that after many years his glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. It does mean that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ and others seeing this work of God might turn to the true light of the world. That's, and that's the context of John 9. So that's good. 
Another way of dealing with this answer is to retranslate or interpret that so that clause, the hina clause, that so that clause, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Rather than interpreting that, and this is legitimate, this is fair, it's, it's kosher, rather than interpreting that clause as a purpose clause, you understand it as a results clause. And the implication is the man was born blind not for the purpose of John 9, but with the result of John 9. It gets us to the same place we just were. It just, it's a different way of getting there. Another way some scholars deal with this is to take that so that clause and attach it to what comes after rather than what comes before. And again, this is a legitimate way of translating the Greek text. So it would look like this. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, period, end of sentence. But so that the works of God might be displayed in him, comma, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. We, we got to get on with this. So that the, works might be, the work of God might be manifested, we need to get on with the works of God. So that changes it a little bit as well. Gary Burge takes this approach. He explains it this way. This purpose clause now explains that Jesus must work so that God's work may be displayed in this man's life. God had not made the man blind in order to show his glory. Rather, God has sent Jesus to do works of healing in order to show his glory. You get the idea we went down a rabbit hole somewhere? <laughs> it gets complicated, doesn't it? Theologians call this subject theodicy. How do you, how do you explain a world of pain and suffering and evil if God is loving and good and all-powerful? How do you defend God's goodness against all the pain and suffering that you see in the world? And how you answer that, how you wrestle with that, that's, that's this big thing called theodicy, and it gets complicated real fast. It's mysterious, too. But here's what we can take away from John 9. Here's our subject this morning. Pain is a fact of life, right? It's inevitable. It is an inevitable, undeniable reality of life in this world. The Bible acknowledges this in Job 5, 7. Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. <laughs> We're born for trouble. In Job 14, 9, or 14, 1, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. In other words, life is short and life is hard. <laughs> There's a philosophy of life. Life is short, life is hard. How's that for a Bible verse? <laughs> promise. Put that on the Bible cover. Life is short. Life is hard. Pain is a fact of life. There's emotional pain. There's physical pain. There's mental anguish. There's spiritual pain. There's pain and grief and loss and suffering. I mean, it is a fact of life, and it comes in all shapes and sizes into every life sooner or later. It is a fact of life. And we need to have a biblical perspective on pain. We've got to be able to do a lot better than the disciples. Well, somebody sinned. Who sinned? Him or his parents? It's his. Who, who, who can we blame? It's all sin. No, we got to be able to do better than that. So that's, that's where we want to go this morning, this problem of pain. Let me give you, first of all, some of the sources of our pain. So here, we're back to your outline now. Where does our pain come from? Well, we can identify several sources. Sometimes our pain is the direct result of sin. Sometimes there is a cause and effect relationship. Sin causes the pain. The Bible says God's God's not mocked. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. And so sometimes our pain is self-inflicted. 
We do it to ourselves. Or if it's not my sin, it's the sin of those who are close to me. And we're collateral damage. You, you get caught up in the aftermath of someone else's sin who's in your proximity. But there's the direct result. Whatever man sows, this shall he also reap. If you have sex outside of marriage and then you find yourself in a, in a royal mess, don't get mad at God. You did that. If you smoke cigarettes for 40 years and they tell you you've got lung cancer, don't get mad at God. I don't know why God would do this to me. Well, you did it, right? Or if you use alcohol and you find yourself an alcoholic and alcohol takes over your life, don't get mad at God. You did that. Or the people in your family, they, they did that. Or whatever, you get the point. So sometimes it is a cause and effect. Sin brings pain. Sometimes it's not sin, it's just stupidity. <laughs> There's another cause. Well, it's not necessarily sinful decisions, just stupid decisions. And people do dumb things every day that brings pain and suffering into their lives. Not necessarily sinful, just dumb. Let's say I get mad at work one day and I pitch a little temper tantrum and I quit my job and I storm out the door. Well, now I'm unemployed. And my family and I, we're going to go through some tough times because I did something dumb. Or let's say I go on a spending spree. I decide I want this and I deserve it and I work hard and so I go and I max out all my credit cards and I dig a deep hole for me and my family and now it's going to take a long time to get upright. Not necessarily sinful, but that's stupid. <laughs> and now there's, there's going to be a pain. There's going to be a price to pay. Sometimes our pain comes from Satan. He's another source of pain. Satan you have an adversary, the devil, who's like a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. And Satan may attack, and he can inflict pain and damage. That's the story of Job. The good news from the story of Job is that we learn that Satan is limited. He is limited by God on what he can do in a believer's life. But you have an adversary, and he can bring some pain. A fourth source of the pain in our lives would just be the sorrows of life. Just the sorrows of life. There are some things that we suffer. It's just life. You live long enough and you'll experience the death of loved ones. You'll have friends and loved ones who die. You'll outlive them and you'll go to a funeral. you experience that loss, that grief. It's part of life. Disappointment. Fact of life. <laughs> Get used to it. Uh, fr uh, frustration, failure, tragedies, accidents, nobody's sin, not Satan, just an accident. It's just life in a fallen world. So sometimes the things that, that hurt us is just life in, it's just ebb and flow of life in a fallen world. And then it could be spankings. The source of our pain could be God's good discipline. Spankings. God may actively, intentionally, bring pain into a believer's life for the purpose of discipline, to bring that believer to a place of repentance where they'll stop doing what they've been doing and turn around and come back to God and get back into a right relationship with him. God's discipline, spankings, and God knows how to spank his children. And then God's sovereign plan. The source of our pain may be God's sovereign plan. God may purposefully allow some pain and suffering to come into a believer's life, not so much for discipline, 
but just for the working out of God's plan and purpose in that believer's life, all to the effect of God's glory. Now, that's mysterious. The book of Job, for example, or quite possibly the man in John chapter 9. Sometimes we know where the pain is coming from. I mean, you're hurting, you're suffering, you're in a mess, and sometimes you can do the math and you figure it out. I did this, I made this mess, or it's your fault, thanks for nothing. <laughs> or, you know, sometimes, sometimes we know. Sometimes we don't know. And sometimes we won't know. Sometimes it's just mysterious. You know, I, I, you know, I keep threatening. One day when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God some things. You know, we all have that conversation, right? We all think, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him, Lord, what was that about? Lord, why did you let that person, that precious saint, why in the world would you let them go through all that stuff? Why, Lord? On the other hand, this person, Lord, I don't get it. Why? It's mysterious. We don't have all those answers. Whatever the source, whatever the kind of pain, whatever the suffering, whatever the grief, whatever the source, we can know this. God will use it. That the works of God will be will be manifested in our lives. We know that God will use the pain. And uh, Ray Stedman wrote this, pain has a way of getting our attention when nothing else will. Isn't that true? Pain has a way of getting our attention when nothing else will. An experience of suffering or loss can produce a profound change in our lives or in our values, our priorities, or our outlook on life. This is how God will use pain. We all like to think that, you know, that we can do the math in a very cold and logical and rational fashion. We can make rational decisions and, and change accordingly. Now, I mean, the problem is we don't like change, right? Can we admit that? Nobody likes change except a baby, and a baby will cry about it. You know, nobody, we don't like to change. We don't want to change. But we like to think when change is necessary, I'll figure it out. I'll just do the math. I'll do A, B, and C. And I'll, I'll do the pros and the cons. And, and in a very meticulous, logical, rational analysis, I'll come to the decision I need to change for X, Y, and Z. Usually it doesn't work that way, does it? What makes us change? Pain. And psychologists will tell us it is the number one impetus for change. When it hurts bad enough, you'll do something about it. When you get sick and tired <laughs> of being sick and tired, when it hurts enough, now I'll change. When the doctor says, if you don't change, you'll be dead in a year, all of a sudden you'll change. <laughs> I'll give up this, I'll stop eating that, or I'll start doing whatever. But now pain gets our attention. Well, what are some ways that God uses pain in our lives? Let me give you six. I mean, this is not an exhaustive list. We could keep going on. But let me give you some of the ways that God will use pain in our lives. One is to discipline us. Like a loving parent, God disciplines. He spanks his children. Hebrews 12 tells us this. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every child he receives. He disciplines his children. He goes on to say, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Think pain. <laughs> Painful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God disciplines his children, and like any good parent, he knows how to spank his kids. He knows what works. He knows 
what will hurt enough to get our attention. And he will use pain to correct us, to teach us, to change us, discipline. And then God will use pain to destroy self-sufficiency. Here's another way God uses pain in our lives, to destroy self-sufficiency. Listen to Paul for the sake of time. You don't have to turn. But in 2 Corinthians 1, Paul said this to to the Corinthians. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us. Affliction, think pain, problems, affliction which came to us in Asia, probably Ephesus, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. You hear that? Affliction, burdened beyond our strength. We didn't think we could stand it. We weren't sure we were going to get out alive. Pain. Now listen, so that... We would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. We were hurting. We were scared. It was bad so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in, a, but in God who, who raises the dead. If we can be honest, when life is going well, when things are smooth sailing, when things are rocking along, doing what it ought to do, we tend to get prideful and self-sufficient, don't we? We, we, just, we just, that's what we do. When things are clicking, look what I did. Look, look at me. Look what I'm doing. Look what I built. Look at what I can accomplish. And we don't say it out loud because we've been to Sunday school and you should, we know you shouldn't say things like this. But we get the attitude in here, I got this. I got this. I got this under control. God, if you want to, go help someone else. I'm good. Uh, Y'all ever go to Publix? Don't you love the customer service at Publix? It's refreshing, isn't it? It's awesome. But now sometimes it's funny. I can go into Publix, buy a loaf of bread. And as I'm checking out, the little bagger will say, can I help you out to your car with that? They ever do that to you? It's a loaf of bread. One day I'm going to say, oh, yes, please, and follow this girl out with a loaf of bread. But, but usually I say, no, I think I can handle it. Why don't you help the next person? Sometimes we kind of get that attitude with God. Again, we know we shouldn't say that out loud, so we don't say it. But we get that attitude, God, why don't you help somebody who needs it? I'm good. i got this under control. I'll call you if I need you. Well, that's an invitation for God to bring some pain. Because God will wake us up. Pain reminds us, I'm not in control. I don't got this. I am dust and ashes. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Without God, we can do nothing. We're dependent on God for everything, every day, including the very breath in our lungs. God will use pain to strip us of that sinful, prideful self-sufficiency. Here's another way God will use pain. To deepen our faith. In James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Think pain. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God will use pain to deepen our faith. To help us to grow in our faith. Again, we're in church, so confession is good for the soul, bad for the reputation, but it's good for us. We can confess. Let's just be honest. We search for God more urgently, 
cling to him more desperately when we're hurt and when we're scared. Our communion with him is sweetest, not when everything's good and comfortable, but when we're hurting. In, in all my ministry, I don't believe I've ever heard this testimony. If I have heard it, I forgot it. But I, I don't ever remember anybody ever saying, Preacher, I want to tell you, that season of my life, everything was perfect. It was, I mean, those were good days. My health was good. The family was good. The marriage was good. The kids were good. The money was good. The business was good. I mean, everything, it was just sweet. We had life by the tail. And preacher, I got to tell you, I grew so much in my faith. And God became so real and so precious to me in those good days. I've never heard that. But what I have heard, more than I can count, a thousand variations on the same thing. Preacher, when I was flat on my back, when I lost everything, when I had nowhere else to go, when the worst thing in the world happened to me, God became real to me. And the worst thing that could ever happen became the best thing that could ever happen because it brought me to God, got me right with God, got me serious about God. And the time in my life when God was the closest and my communion with him was the sweetest was when, you know, when it was the worst, when it was the darkest, when it was hour by hour and day by day. Haven't you heard that? Maybe that's your testimony. I've heard that time and time again. God will use pain to deepen our faith. And God will use pain to develop our maturity, to help us to grow in Christ. Not only to deepen our faith, to, to grow us spiritually, to mature us. Romans 5, not only this, we exult in our tribulations, knowing tribulations is pain, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. This is how God uses pain in our lives. Perseverance, steadfastness, endurance, proven character, a, a character that has been tested and approved. Hope, a confident expectation that God will do what God said he will do, that, that God's faithful. So how does God get us to that point? How does God move us from point A to point B to where our lives are characterized by perseverance, proven character, and hope? Pain. Tribulations. That's what God, do. That's what God uses to get us there. And then God uses pain to direct our hearts toward heaven. To direct our hearts toward heaven. In Colossians 3. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This world is not our home. This world is not heaven. But we work real hard at trying to make this world heaven. <laughs> we work really hard to bring a little bit of heaven to this world. But this world's not heaven. This isn't heaven. That's heaven. And that's what Paul is saying. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. And God uses pain, pain, suffering, what, grief, the heartache. God uses pain in our lives to cut the heartstrings with this world this system, this environment, and to turn our attention and our affections toward him. 
Set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of glory. And when he is revealed, you'll be revealed with him in glory. That's heaven. That's what we look forward to. And then, then it'll be pain-free, problem-free. And there'll be no more pain or grief or sorrow or suffering and so forth. But God, God will use pain to just kind of cut those bonds where you don't love this world anymore and you long for heaven and you long for what's to come. And then another way God uses pain in our lives, to deploy us for ministry. To deploy us for ministry. 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, pain, so that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Did you get that? God is the God of all comfort. When do you need comfort? When you're hurting pain. And as God's child, you draw near to the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, and God will comfort you in your season of pain. Not so that you can be comfortable, but so that you can turn around and be a comforter to someone else in their season of pain. I've seen this a thousand times. You go through a world of hurt, whatever it looks like, some tragedy, some some awful thing, and God's there with you. God gets you through it. You experience it with God. God comforts you in, your, in that pain. And then later on, someone else is going through that same thing you went through. Whatever it is, whatever it is. But you, you find yourself in proximity to someone who's going through what God helped you get through. And now you can come to that person and in all honesty say, I know what you're going through because I've been through it too. And God was with me when I was going through it. And God will be with you as you go through it. And I'm here to go through it with you too. God comforts us so that we may be able to comfort them who are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. God uses our pain to deploy us for ministry. And the works of God are manifested and God gets the glory. Well, those are just some ways that God uses pain. We could keep adding to that list, but we'll stop, we'll stop there. Pain is an inevitable fact of life. I mean, it's, life is short, life is hard. It is a fact of life. We need to have a biblical perspective on pain. We've got to be able to do better than, than Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind. We've got to be able to do better than that. And when it's our pain, we need to have a better response. How do we respond to the pain? Well, let me give you three ways. One, know that God will use the pain to help you. Whatever the source, we had all those different sources. So whatever the source, whatever the, the flavor, the variety of pain you're going through, you can know as a child of God, God, God is using that pain and God will use that pain in, in these different ways in your life. The works of God will be manifested in you in that pain. Secondly, Know that the pain, for a Christian, the pain is only temporary. It's temporary. Paul said in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that's temporary. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Over in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, a momentary light affliction. Now you go back and read 2 Corinthians and you look at what Paul endured for the sake of Christ. I got to tell you, I don't want to grow up and be like Paul. <laughs> Paul was tough. You look at what Paul suffered 
for Christ. I don't want to suffer that for Christ. Paul went through some stuff, and yet he calls it a momentary light affliction. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen, and things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen are eternal. Two times in 1 Peter, Peter says you suffer for a little while. If you suffer for a little while. For a believer, the good news is, whatever pain you're going through, even if it follows you to your deathbed, it's temporary. Because this life is temporary. And we have eternal life in Christ Jesus. The pain is temporary. And then thirdly, we know this. As we experience pain, we can entrust ourselves to God. So that's the best response. Entrust yourself to God. 1 Peter 4.19. Listen to this. 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God. Did you get that? Those who suffer according to the will of God. Stick that in your prosperity pipe. Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator and doing what is right. Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator and doing what is right. That's a proper perspective and a proper response to pain. Now all this that we've been talking about, this is for believers. I've been talking to believers about believers. This is for the Christian. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not been born again, my friend, this, this isn't true for you. And, and there is no promise that the pain is temporary. It's just the opposite. This is as good as it gets for the unbeliever. It's downhill from here. And eternity is a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and eternal torment. The pain is forever. And it's going to get worse. No, all, all this is for believers. My friend, are you a believer? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Now, we didn't really preach about the cross or salvation or the, anything that wasn't in our text. But I can't let you go without you knowing that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us, you and me. We have sinned against God and the wages of sin is death. But God loves you and he wants to save you from your sins. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins and to be buried and to be raised again. And Jesus Christ is alive today and he offers you the gift of eternal life. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't pay for it. You, you receive it by putting your faith and trust in Christ. You acknowledge, you believe, you confess I'm a sinner before a holy God. I deserve death and hell. But I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died on the cross for me. He rose again, and I need Jesus. And so you repent. You turn from sin and self in this world. You turn to Jesus Christ in faith, and you, and you trust him with your life and death and eternity. Oh, Jesus, save me. I trust you to save me. Not a church, not a religion, not a creed or a code or a ritual. Jesus, I trust you to forgive me and to save me based on your word your death, your resurrection. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me. If you'll repent and believe on him, he'll save you. If you've never done that, or if you're not sure, if you have doubts, or if you have questions, I beg you, in the name of Jesus, in a moment, we're going to stand up and sing a hymn of decision. I'll be right here. I invite you to come to me and say, preacher, I need Jesus. I want to be saved. I have questions, or I have doubts. How can I know? However you want to say it, and we'd love to have a private conversation with you and help you settle that most important matter. 
But do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you are saved, maybe you're looking for a church home and God has brought you here. If God has brought you here, we'd love to have you. You come forward and say, we want to join this church. We'll just take it from there. Perhaps you need to follow him in baptism. Maybe you just need to pray with somebody. We'd love to pray with you. But whatever God is saying to you this morning, you say yes to him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this, this perspective on, on the pain problem. God, we thank you for that assurance that even, even in the midst of pain, you're at work in the pain and you're going to use the pain and the works of God are going to be manifested and you're going to be glorified and we're going to be strengthened and matured and helped and, and ultimately benefited on the other side of the pain. God, we thank you that, that we know that no matter what it is or how long it lasts, the pain is temporary and that one day you'll be revealed and we'll be revealed with you in glory. Seal this message to our hearts. God, I pray for the one who's never been saved. Help them to see they need Jesus Christ and bring them to the cross even now. Take charge of this time of decision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.